You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, ChristianHumanist.org. Welcome to Before They Were Live, an ongoing and monthly conversation about the Disney animated canon in chronological order. Today we are discussing the 14th movie in the canon, 1953's Peter Pan, a movie with a lot of cultural cachet, perhaps the most outside of uh, the princess movies. Tinkerbell is kind of the anti-princess, but she's obviously gained the same kind of product tie-in and brand prominence that would rival any of them. In addition to being the symbol of the magic of Disney, introducing just about all the old live-action Disney television shows, uh, and of course she's still being the pixie that flies over the Disney Castle logo on all the Disney properties. So she's fared pretty well. Then there's our title character of Peter. Something about the male stars, they just don't always carry the same positive connotations. Much like Pinocchio before him, who had somewhat of a cultural icon for not being able to tell the truth, Peter Pan has been permanently attached culturally to his least flattering trait, his aversion to growing up, or his Peter Pan complex. On the bright side, he'll sell you some delicious peanut butter. I'm your fellow student and friend, Josh altman Schofer, and once my co-host didn't know all the things that he know now, but Dr. Michael Farmer, he sure learned a lot, and it's all from asking how. I, I can't believe you went with uh, What Makes the Red Man Red, probably the most controversial song here. Hey, let me ask you a question. This fellow student thing, did you, did you rip that off from what Trump can teach us about con law? I absolutely did. Gotcha. Yes. Yeah, I don't know if you're the fellow student. I don't think of this as a conversation between the two of us, not me lecturing you. Oh, that's true. And yeah, I, I don't mean to make it a non-conversation. I start it by saying it's a conversation, but you are the professor and I am not. So um, I'm not a professor of Disney movies, to be fair. Yeah, that's true. Actually, so I have a, I have a question related to this for you this week because I've been um, eagerly anticipating when we get to like your actual area of expertise. And so I know uh, John Updike was writing for The New Yorker in 1954, which is a year after Peter Pan was released. Um, and I know his early collections of like poetries and short stories are labeled like 1953 to 75 or something. I don't know. Um, so if we hit like your world yet where you're like, oh yeah, I know like the, you know, the, 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 the culture of what is happening, like from a, from a, like an intellectual level, you know, or are we still kind of hovering around it? Yeah, we're almost there. I would I would say starting about 1955 and running through I don't know 75. I have a pretty good idea of what's going on. Okay. When we get to the Jungle oh. Book, I, I I have a lot of cultural thoughts about the Jungle Book. I think okay. I think um, maybe out of all of the old ones, the Jungle Book is the most beholden to its cultural moment in some ways that uh, I will probably bore everybody by talking about. 
All right. I can't wait to get there. So that was that was kind of my yeah. So I'll I'll hold any other questions on that. I didn't know if you had any opening thoughts on like the 1950s or something. I think this is when America was great the first time. Is that that's right? right. Yeah. Well, that's that's what we want. We want to go back to Neverland. All right. Go go back to offensive Native American stereotypes and angry, <laughs> small angry women. <laughs> yeah. Do we want to jump into the uh, Native American stereotypes here? Or do we want to like wait wait on it until we get closer into the movie? Let's go ahead and get that out of the way. With uh, there's really no excuse for them, right? I mean, they're they're really really horrible, and I suspect they were really horrible even in 1953. Okay, so my question on this, I'm not in no way am I arguing that they are not horrible, um, and I am and definitely what. Uh, Europeans and early Americans did to the indigenous peoples of America was just, I mean, it's, it's top, top level horrible. And, um, like, <laughs> so the, all those caveats aside, I just, I, I want to ask the question. Um, this like is so general, like just Indian, right? Like it's, it's, um, in some ways it's more offensive that it's like, you like your people's matter so much that that we're going to generalize them into nothing like we don't like there's 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 nothing specific to even point at here necessarily right so in some ways that's worse but on the other on the other side like if it if it was an actual like stereotype or an actual like you know satire of something like it cuts a little deeper maybe you know like this to me feels less like it's actually poking fun at any group and more like it just fits in with the whole idea of like a boy's childhood adventure trope like we have pirates we have indians we have fairies we have mermaids we have uh secret hideouts we have maps like you know what i mean yes i I do so, so is there a point i guess this is my question is is there a point when the trope is so far removed from the actual like root, like the actual whatever it is that it was originally pointing at, that it's almost like they're almost like not connected anymore. Like it's, you know what I mean? Yes. Like, is, I, I'm is not sure you and I have the right to say that this movie has gotten to that point, but I do think it's an important distinction to make that that this is just such a bundle of stereotypes, the the Native American stuff in this movie that. I, I am tempted to say, how could you even be offended because it's so ham-fisted? Um, and yeah. I, I will say two things about that. One is that David Grubbs pointed this out to me years ago. Um, Neverland is already kind of a master uh, collection of fantasy tropes, right? So, I mean, the, the point of Neverland is, uh, in the Edwardian era... This is all the things little boys love, as you said, just kind of thrown together into one island. So I, I think I think maybe we can lessen the offensiveness by thinking of this as a, as a little boy's version. And the other thing I'll point out is uh, Peter Pan is, is a British property, which and the British just don't have the same history with Native Americans as Americans do. And I mean, of course, the movie itself is made largely by Americans, but... Um, if, if we're seeing this as coming from J.M. Barrie, I think it's important to think about uh, European attitudes toward cowboys and Indians. And, and you know, 
I, I, don't, I don't know about every European country. I don't really know about Britain, but the French and the Germans in particular absolutely love cowboys and Indian stuff. So I, I think also that's that's going into the stew here. Yeah, because there's this whole, um, and maybe maybe you know where this comes from, but like there's this whole sort of fascination with like the cowboys and Indians thing, right? Like, like I mean, it's in a million westerns and um other like movies from this era and before and to a lesser extent after because we've become more aware i guess of the potential offensiveness but like or at least i want to hope that we've become more aware (laughs) maybe they were fully aware of what they were doing at the time this wouldn't happen today right i mean there's no no way this would go out on a movie but i will point out they made that peter pan live action movie it wasn't disney i don't think this was a few years ago, and they cast Rooney Mara as Tiger Lily. Rooney Mara must be one of the whitest women in America. So, so I, I think I think in some ways, in some ways, we're not that much more self-aware about it, or at least the people making the movies aren't. Uh, but to, to to even put that in the same category as what's going on with the Indians in this movie is absurd. I mean, yeah. this is this is. I, I was going to say it's one of the most over the top racist things in a Disney movie, and maybe it's one of them. But uh, we've got the Siamese cats coming up next time, so. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> as, I, as I said, I wasn't I wasn't trying to excuse it. I'm just I am curious about, and I think you're right. Like we're not we're not the ones to make that call. Um, I was. Um, I grew up thinking that I had the the tiniest amount of native american in me um because that was the story i was told was like you know my 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 grandmother's grandmother or something like that you know had been and so um but then my 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 uncle who i grew up telling me that story got his genes done with the you know the 23andMe or whatever, the Ancestry.com. I don't know which one he used. Um, and we've got nothing in there. So not that that would Sorry, also Josh. qualify. No, I, did, I, didn't, <laughs> I just say that as like a – I don't even know why I'm talking. Um, Actually, and you know what? I, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to backpedal and say we're really not more self-aware about This isn't based on you. But, but the, you saying that reminded me of the Johnny Depp Tonto from that Lone Ranger movie a few years ago. The, the, the sheer oh, yeah, stereotypical yeah. and his his defense is I'm part Creek Indian yeah, yeah but I mean you're not right I mean you might be part Creek Indian but you didn't grow up being treated as if you were an Indian right yeah which is very very different so which yeah, that's not an just, attack on you of course like that it, it just made oh me, I know I would made just, me think of the yeah. absurdity of his defense of that <laughs> that portrayal right. <laughs> Yeah, and I wasn't using that as a defense, so I take no no attack on it. I just, um, yeah. So the the book I would recommend if people are interested in actual actually understanding um, more of like what the indigenous world was like before Europeans arrived would be 1491 by Charles Mann. Have you read that one? I haven't. It's it's it was it's very good. I really enjoyed it. I I, I want to say it's one of the best I've read, but I. Um, I don't read as much as I wish I did, so that that feels like faint praise. But <laughs> well, you, you've really... got a job and four children, so I'm, I'm yeah, glad you yeah. have enough time to watch these movies and talk to me about them. 
Yeah. <laughs> so I felt like, oh, this is my chance to talk about one of my favorite books, or at least put a plug in for it. I really, I really enjoyed it. There's a sequel called 1493, which I have not read, but 1491 is fascinating and really was educational for me because he goes through and basically breaks down all this, all the all the reasons why we learned what we learned in school and, and also why they were completely false. Um, and so, yeah, it was a really insightful book and, uh, yeah. I'll have so. to check that out. I, I, I will say one more thing. Um, I think you've got to, you've got to applaud Disney for not pulling this out of later prints of the movie. They're, they're so fond of removing things that they've decided they shouldn't show children. Um, and they, they kept this one in I mean, they pull the cigarette scene from Pecos Bill, a, a movie that nobody's going to watch, no children are going to watch, and they leave in the uh, what makes the red man red from this movie that essentially every child watches. And I imagine you end up having to have a lot of conversations with your children, but it certainly works well for people like us who are watching these movies. Also, I, I guess I don't know how the plot of this movie would work if they pulled it. Yeah. And I, so I was wondering on that point, too, um just about like censorship type things in general, you know, like, um, I, I'm imagining that you have some thoughts on it. Um, and I think I can't remember. Did you, did you guys on the, the mothership podcast, Christian humanists, like, did you guys talk about censorship or banned books or something? In one yeah, point? we have a banned books episode. Yeah. So maybe as people usual, can just go anything and I said that. there, I may contradict today. So, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, but I, I do wonder about that. Like, um, yeah, so you're applauding them for leaving it in, which, you know, my my position on this is at least make the stuff available so that people like us can see it and talk about it and discuss it. But do you have a, uh, a anything else you want to say on that? So I think one good way to do it, and I wish they would have done this with Melody Time, but the way they do it on the Walt Disney Treasures DVDs, which have all the shorts, so they they have some definitely offensive shorts. They have Leonard Maltin come on and talk about the cultural context behind them and offer a kind of half-hearted defense of what's going on. And I think that's a good way to to deal with these things where shifting cultural norms have made it no longer appropriate, but you don't want to just pull it all together. But I don't think that solves the problem for a movie like this, which is watched by children, because children aren't going to watch or understand that. So really what you need if you're going to have this stuff in there is for the parents to talk talk about the presentation with their children, and I'm not sure you can count on that. I don't know. Did you did you watch this with your kids? Uh, they've seen this one, and I haven't had that conversation with them yet. So I was actually, uh, yeah, like, what do you say? Like, what or I don't have yeah. children. If you were so in my position, what to say. <laughs> I, I don't know. I, I really don't. Um, yeah, I was I was hoping you would have some insight on that. I mean. Yeah, I don't. I guess I should think about that more, especially when I show kids movies like this. But um, there are a few more offensive than the the what makes the red man red scene. I, I remember I took a Native American lit class in graduate school, and this was Exhibit A on the way American pop culture treats Native Americans. Yeah. Yeah, we were watching uh, the Aristocats the other night, which we'll get to, but there's definitely uh, some sort of <laughs> ridiculous stereotypes in all of the uh, uh, cool cats, gang of cats, 
Um, so we'll have to talk about that when we get there. Well, and I don't know one. when the last time you saw Lady and the Tramp was. That's our next movie. Lady and the Tramp, almost all the humor is ethnic humor. And, and I mean, most of it doesn't read as ethnic humor for us because making fun of the Scottish for being cheap is not really a stereotype anymore. Uh, but uh, there's a lot of stuff in there. All the all the different dogs are different races, essentially. Um, and they're not terribly subtle about it. So, uh, but then other than the other than the Siamese cats in that movie, I don't I don't think that movie reads as offensive as the What Makes the Red Man Red scene. It's just so blatant. Um, and I, I just have to believe in even in 1953 they had some sense that this was not cool. Yeah, I you know it didn't come up in uh, any of my reading on it. Um, I didn't go super deep this month though, um, but like, yeah. So I I don't know if they did or not. It'd be it'd be interesting. The none of the criticisms I saw mentioned that particular thing. You know, so. certainly certainly the Jack Benny shows from the late forties, early fifties have um, Indian humor, lots of how and that that sort of thing. Uh, but nothing this bad. Uh, this is it's it's such a long scene, and there's really nothing redeeming about it. Maybe at the time it, it read as funny, but I did you laugh at the "What Makes the Red Man Red" song? Uh, not anymore. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if I did when I was a kid, but yeah, not not this particular time. Um, Get that great mother-in-law say, joke in there, though. That's right. Yes, there's a mother-in-law joke. Um, yeah, the first time they said "ug," and then uh, yeah, they've got the great follow-up joke actually when uh, <laughs> uh, Peter comes back into the um, into the hideout and Wendy's sitting there and kind of sulking, and he says something to her, and she just turns and says "ug." <laughs> <laughs> I didn't catch that. That's great. Yeah, that, it was a good good follow-up to the song because it's immediate <laughs> immediately afterwards. Um, I will say though that uh, outside of Wendy, Tiger Lily's got to be the most dignified person in the movie. That's true, and she she is much less, much less, not not at all, much less stereotypical than the other Indians. On the other hand, she barely does she talk at all. No, I don't think she has any lines. Um, it's all in her facial expression and just her. But I mean, the the fact that she doesn't talk is kind of a little bit her sense of dignity in the in the face of Captain Hook and Shmi. Um, bringing her out to the to drown essentially. And I, I do think it's important that, unlike all the other Native Americans, she is animated on Wendy's facial model. I mean, she looks like closer to a real human being. She looks like Cinderella or Alice rather than like the other Indians who have exaggerated stereotypical features. Right, and the the uh, the other like seeing the seeing the Indians in the or the Native Americans. I mean they they're called Indians in the movie, so that's I kind of feel like um but anyway, like seeing them in a positive light would be the the way that when the Lost Boys are coming up with their plan of, of what they're going to do, that that is exactly the plan that, you know, that they enact on them in order to to, to trap the Lost Boys. So um there's a little bit of humor at the Lost Boys expense but not at the expense of the of the Indians at that point, you know. Right. Yeah, the Lost Boys talk about them like they're a bunch of idiot savages, and they get the drop on them. Yeah. So I think we've said everything 
in partial defense of that scene as we possibly can, but we are not at all saying that that scene is okay. Right? Correct. Correct. Well, that was... <laughs> yeah, I was Talk to I, you next month, Josh. <laughs> yeah, that was great. That was all right. <laughs> all right. Um, all right. Well, do you want to jump back in the beginning there? or Actually, um, all right, you know, just one more thing kind of related to this. So uh, this movie was, at, like, at the in, in Walt's initial plan, this was going to be movie number two after Snow White. And so there's actually some really early um, work done, you know, like they do the conceptual scenes and those sorts of things on it. So this, this one's been bouncing around in the, in the theater for, or in the, not in the theater, in the uh, studio for a while. And um, some of those early art, um, it would be interesting to get into the alternate universe where that movie was made, because I think it would be, it looked like it was going to be tonally much darker in the way that uh, Snow White is much darker in some ways than anything else that we've seen. Um, and, like, some of that early conceptual art, art of Tiger Lily, um, like, when, they're, when they're, they're putting her on a rock, you know, to, to drown, and there's, there's next to where they're putting her, there's a line of other skeletons all chained in, you know, <laughs> like in the conceptual art. So it's a very, very different tone than what we got here. Um, the same thing yeah, happened the, to Alice. Alice in Wonderland. Right. I think we talked about that a little bit last month. That, that Alice in Wonderland was originally much, much darker. And, and in fact, the the person who did the storyboards for both of those movies originally in 1940, I think, uh, was called David Hall. He's 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 the British artist who did both of them. So it is interesting. And then both of them, both of them became a reality because of Mary Blair. I, I mean, Peter Pan is in some ways. Mary Blair's masterpiece. Uh, you, I don't think this movie would have happened if she hadn't come in and redone the storyboards and the concept art. Yeah, and you really can see it. And yeah, just the the look of Neverland is is a very Mary Blair look, right? As oh, we've talked about her uh, several times before, but just in her use of her color palette and um, her her. Her style, it just it, it shines through in, in really, really beautiful ways here. Yeah, it, I mean, as with Alice, it's interesting to know what this would have looked like if they'd gone with a darker look, uh, whether whether it would still be as beloved as it is. Because I mean, you think about the difference between the way people think about this movie and the way people think about Snow White. I, I think this is a much more popular movie with children than Snow White is. Yeah, it's difficult for me to even separate this movie out from like the Disney style. And so, um, yeah, maybe in a minute here, we'll t- or maybe now is a good time to just talk about like the way the animation actually looks in this movie. Um, but for me, like I just, I grew up so much on, on this movie and other movies of this era that it just, this feels like Disney style to me. Um, the other thing I was going to say, though, before we got there was just I had a really great uh, Walt Disney story. So they're 
they're trying to hash the story of this, you know, like what, what's it actually going to look like? And at one point they're trying to save money. And so they're just having, um, they're just kind of approving it scene by scene before they get all the way through it. And Disney's kind of putting them off and saying, just, you know, when you have everything, just, just show me the whole thing. And so, um, they've, they've, they've mapped the whole story. And I think, I believe it's Ward Kimball, uh, comes in and pitches the whole thing to Walt, you know, beginning to end. And then, uh, Walt just, it says, he just drummed his fingers for a minute and said, you know, I've been thinking about Cinderella. (laughs) (laughs) Oh man. Yeah. Yeah. It does seem like, it does seem like the backstory to all the 1950s movies is, well, we wanted to make this in 1939, but Hitler invaded Poland. (laughs) That's really true. Yeah. Yeah. And it really, it'd be interesting, um, yeah, to see some of those movies get made, right? Because I think, um, yeah, by the time this one gets made, the talent at the studio has been uh, depleted by the strike, by financial troubles, by the war itself, you know, all these sorts of things. And I think it's actually after this movie is when Walt finally buckles and starts hiring animators from other studios, you know, um, because he had a real aversion to that for a long time because he wanted all his people trained in the Disney method from, you know, he didn't want to have to get people to unlearn what they already knew. Um, but by this point, they were just depleted of, of talent. So, yeah, it'd be interesting to see what would have happened with more talent. Although, potentially, it would have been worse, right? Sometimes you get, you know, too many highly talented people in a room together and they, they can't get along. So Yeah, and I think we've, I, I don't know if we've talked about this on the show or not, but sometimes the limitations in making a work of art help create the work of art. I, I, I know that you and I have talked about this, but I don't know if we've talked about it on the air. I think the great example of that is the White Stripes, who um, the band The White Stripes, who, who gave themselves really arbitrary limitations and it, it helped... Uh, helped create this very distinctive sound they had. Um, so, I mean, maybe it's better that he couldn't get everything he wanted and then he, cause he had to work it within these, these bounds that otherwise he wouldn't have had to. Uh, I say that, however, it goes the other way too, right? Cause the 1940s movies are all very limited and I think we can agree they're not as good. Right. Yeah. I think when we mentioned that before, at least, and like, I agree with you. I don't remember if it was on air or off air. Um, we're talking about Dumbo because Dumbo, it seems like he finally hit that, um, emotional, uh, what gravity that he was trying to get with the earlier movies. Um, but Dumbo was so much more limited than Snow White or Pinocchio was, you know, but it it has a, it has kind of an emotional resonance that, that those earlier movies don't necessarily. Yeah. They don't to me anyway. I, I recognize that those are good movies, but um, I don't. I don't love them the way I love Dumbo or Bambi, or I mean, for that matter, this movie, which I, I loved as a child and still really enjoy, other than the the uh, one scene. Right. So I still do really enjoy this one. It was, you know, one that I, um, yeah, I, I was looking forward to watching, and and like I said, I get I get almost so caught up in it that it's hard to look at it critically in a way. Um, but I know one of the one of the criticisms of the movie was kind of the inconsisticencies in character design. Uh, you know, you have Wendy looking 
one way and uh but her brother's looking much more cartoonish and then uh some of the pirates are extremely cartoonish and you know they're just kind of all, all over the board on like how real are we trying to make this this movie um how you know how much are we still how much are we bringing in like the really cartoony type jokes and how much are we you know doing something else here and which it must be said was also true of Alice but because Alice was in a fantasy land it wasn't as it wasn't as noticeable although i mean worth pointing out most of the really cartoonish characters live in neverland that's true and so i think that does that does cover it to a certain extent um is the fantasy element of it but i think if you kind of know it you know like having read up on it a little bit before watching then then i could see it a little more like i you know i spotted it but and partly because I, I watch these movies more carefully when I know I have to talk about them. So, um, but one of the, the animation, I think the, the animation genius of this movie is gotta be Nana. Like, <laughs> I love the entire thing with, with her. Like, I, I just feel like she is so good, um, you know, using her ear to, you know, push the tray up onto the table. Um, she gets a little bit of that the medicine or the tonic in her mouth and just like the look on her face. Um, the, uh, yeah, there's, there's just so much good stuff with Nana. You would say, you would say Nana is better animated than Tinkerbell. Cause I think Tinkerbell is, is an all time classic character and, and her, her bodily acting is the reason for that. That's, that is an excellent point. I, uh, yeah, I, I see you that. Yeah. I could, I could see it being, being Tinkerbell. Not that um, not that Nana's not great, by the way, and and uh, yeah. a really charming. My my favorite thing about Nana is uh, when George says what we're all thinking. Uh, there'll be no more dogs for nursemaids in this house. <laughs> <laughs> like, how can this man who hates whimsy so much be okay with the dog being the nurse? <laughs> so I'm glad I'm yeah. glad he addressed it. But, so yeah, I have I have some more words on George in a minute. Um, I guess just going back to the Nana versus Tinkerbell, uh, Nana makes me so happy to watch. And I guess maybe it is the whimsy of her, which is weird to say because, you know, Tinkerbell is literally a pixie. So oh, but <laughs> there's really nothing whimsical about Tinkerbell. She, uh, she's so me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's what I meant kind of in my intro there that she's, she's really an anti princess in a way, you know, like she's a very different feminine than than any of the princesses i think is that fair to say yeah i think so i mean until i think the the new movies they made of her they they domesticate her a little bit but i haven't seen them obviously yeah neither have i so yeah but nana's great and the without nana you don't get the wonderful scene where they're um they're flying to neverland and michael dumps the pixie dust on nana and she flies butt first into the air still chained to her doghouse yeah i hope the pixie dust wears off yeah well it must because they they let her back in and i think at the end they're they're bringing her up the stairs george george and uh whatever his wife's name is oh what is her name i don't know she has one i have her I, I, i have her listed as mrs darling yeah so yeah, in, in some of the early concepts, uh, they actually had Nana going with them to Neverland, which would have made a very different movie as well. Yeah, it would have, I wonder.
So George, I think, encapsulates what I what I kind of see as the theme of this movie, and I don't know if it's if this is this is right or not, but it seems to me that there's a real theme running through this movie of um, the importance of what you pay attention to and like where your where your attention goes and making sure that it's on the right thing, um, because George is completely oblivious to everything. Uh, that his children say to him. Like, he doesn't understand a word of anything they say in the entire movie. Um, he's oblivious to, um, uh, like, he puts the the shirt cover thing on and it's got chalk all over it and he has no idea, right? Like, he's even oblivious to the clothes that he's wearing. He's oblivious to um, uh, the dog, <laughs> Nana, right? Um he can't like, tell that he has this hyper-intelligent dog who can apparently read. Yeah. <laughs> Among all the other things that she can do. Pour tonic to the right amounts to, to give to children. Um, yeah, just, I mean, everything that, that that dog is doing, and he just, like, he's just literally tripping over her. Like, he has no no focus for her at all or no attention for her whatsoever. And, um you know, there's that scene early on, and it's it's played for a laugh, and it is a good laugh when when he trips over Nana, and then uh, all the kids and his wife say "aww," and he thinks they're coming to him, um, and he runs to Nana, which kind of shows that you know he's looking for this affection, um, and then he, he he attains it. He attains the affection he's looking for when he finally puts his attention on what his wife and daughter are also looking at, right? Like when he looks at the ship and he notices the ship, then they turn towards him with, with the affection in their eyes because he finally, like in the, in the last scene of the movie, locks in onto the thing he's supposed to be looking at, which is the same thing that they are looking at, you know? And so... And it seems like he, yeah. he, he has been to Neverland, right? Because he says he remembers seeing that ship before. Right, Yes. So he yeah. he's gone and forgotten, and I think that's I think that's important. Yeah, maybe it's the forgetting. Um, I think that's a good point. Did you ever see the movie Hook? Yes. Yeah, yeah. You're, you and I are the about the right age to enjoy Hook. Um, but I, I thought that that's a thing Hook does really well. That that once you leave Neverland, you you be, you slowly begin to forget it, and that's the tragedy of adulthood. Right, which I think is like where people traditionally go with with this movie as far as themes and stuff is like, oh, it's the theme of innocence, or you know, uh, and I mean, I'm not I'm not denying that all that is there, but just what what struck me this time was, you know, how often the thing that was being overlooked was the most important thing, or how often when people were were focused on something, but it was, you know, their their focus was in the wrong direction, that it was causing trouble, right? Um, like Hook's whole thing, like his his men are about to have a mutiny because he is solely focused on Peter Pan. Like he is not willing to be a pirate anymore because he just wants Pan. And um, Tinkerbell, for most of the movie, is focused on her love of Peter, 
But when she loses that focus is when she betrays him. And I don't know, there's and even little moments like, um, you know, Michael spots uh, the the Native American in the tree, but he's trying to warn the other lost boys, but their attention isn't on him, you know, like, it's very know, interesting. Really, it struck, it just stuck out to me this time. Anyway, and then, this. and then the way they fly is by thinking happy thoughts. And if they stop thinking of them, they don't fly. Right. So that's, yeah. another, that's another form of attention. That's very interesting. Yeah. What do you think? I, I what, think what do you think that's about? Like, I, I don't know. I was going to ask you that. <laughs> <laughs> I was gonna. I was gonna ask if you thought I was way off, or if you thought I was onto something, and then yeah, what what you thought it meant. I uh, know. Um, I absolutely think you're onto something, and I mean maybe maybe we can tie that in with the forgetting thing, and and really what this is about is what this is about is remembering and paying attention to the the things that that enchant the world which i mean is is on some level i think what all these movies are about yeah i like that idea because that's that is the uh you know it's it's george looking at the ship you know the enchant it's the clouds really right but or is it (laughs) right right but like it's shaped as clouds right so it's almost the enchantment of the clouds in a way these are things that are there to be seen if you want to see them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Even the dog. I mean, even yeah. Even the dog is that way, right? Like, right. It's, it's uh, yeah. It's it's a it's a common enough item, and I mean, I think that's the the the. <clears throat> oh, I'm I'm really I'm, I'm resonating with what you're talking about here because now I'm jumping to you know the the boys see the cufflinks as buried treasure, but he sees them as nothing but cufflinks, right? Like. Right. I don't know. There's there's something, at least it's connecting in my mind to that sort of that enchant look viewing through the lens of enchantment. Um, well, another another, th- another thing that we've talked about in the past is that the the good guys in these movies almost always are in touch with nature, and the bad guys are almost always not. And maybe that's a matter of attention too. Maybe the reason the reason Johnny Appleseed connects with the animals is that he notices what they really are whereas everybody else sees them as some sort of threat. Yeah. And vice versa, right? Right. (laughs) The animal, with with Johnny Appleseed in particular, like the animals view him as a threat at first um, until they see what he really is. Right. Yeah, I like this. You're kind of tying together all the things we normally talk about. And and adding this attention piece, which really, I think, really um, really does hold them together. To me, Mr. Darling has a lot in common with Mr. Banks from Mary Poppins. Yes, I agree. I actually, I, I'm glad you brought that up. Um, yeah, talk, talk some more about that, because I, I also had that in my notes. Well, they're both these very practical men, and because they're very practical men, they, they don't want to hear about any nonsense, uh, even though the nonsense in both of those movies happens to be true. There really is a woman who can fly with an umbrella, and there, there really is a... Uh, you, you really can steal somebody's shadow... I love that that's never explained. It's just the the absurd logic of childhood. Uh, and and I mean the point here is the absurd logic of childhood is real. And if you're if you're overly practical, you're not going to be able to see it. It's interesting. Um, I I had never noticed this before. The reason Peter Pan chooses the Darlings is that there are people in the house who believe in them, uh, believe in him. And it's not just the children. Mrs. Darling, it says believes in him as the spirit of youth. 
So she she has this kind of metaphorical belief in Peter Pan, which is enough apparently. It's enough yeah, to, noticed, enough to see it. Yeah, I noticed that too. That it was, uh, yeah, where, yeah, where people believe in him, um, or to tie it back to the attention thing, like they pay attention to him, you know. Um, yeah, I think there's something really lovely in that. Which is all an eleven year old boy wants, right? Yeah, well, <laughs> it definitely seems to be high on uh, Peter's Peter's priority list, at least. Can um, we admit that Peter Pan is a thoroughly unattractive character? Yes, definitely, uh, definitely. Um, although, I, yeah, let's let's get back to him in just a minute. I wanted to stick on on Mary Poppins for just a second because there there is this other parallel that I noticed was at the beginning of Mary Poppins, it says almost the exact same thing it says in this one where it's, you know, this has all happened before and it will all happen again. And I forget the line that Bert says. I don't know if you remember it, but it's something very like that, you know, um, in his opening little like uh, one man band show when he catches the wind, you know, and the winds, the winds changing and, you know, something feels like this has happened before. You know? Do you remember that? I do not. It's been a long time since I saw Mary Poppins. Oh, uh, yeah. I, I'm, I'm the one with four kids, so that makes sense. Um, well, that one's nice because yeah. you can just put them in front of it and it'll keep them occupied for two and a half hours. <laughs> it's a very, very long movie, which also starts in London and also, like... You and know, already like, in London at that. I mean, it's it's yeah. a very similar l- location. Yeah so, yeah, so I saw a lot of, of interesting parallels there. I'm sure somebody's done work on that, but... I um my my what strikes me about the first ten minutes of this movie is why would anybody want to leave Edwardian Bloomsbury London? Uh, <laughs> the the shot of them flying over the city just makes the city look so beautiful, and I mean, to, to me, it's much more a much more interesting place than Neverland in some ways. But maybe that's just that just proves that I have grown up too much. Yeah, or I mean, to you, it's uh, it's on it's it's not something you can visit, right? So That's true. Yeah. In, in some ways, it is a it is a Neverland for you. It's yeah, it's so as far right. away that, as Neverland. Yeah, that shot of them flying over the city—they fly over the clouds, and the the shadows do that that thing um, that shadows do when it's like something really close, and then it jumps to far away, you know. And it's I, oh, it's a lovely bit of animation there too. Yeah, it's really gorgeous. Yeah, that is beautiful and very iconic. They land on the clock, and yeah, it's all very, very iconic scenery there. So, I, I mean, I think just in terms of animation, the stuff in London is much more beautiful than the stuff in Neverland. And and maybe um, maybe we're back to the limitations thing. There's only so much they can do with London. It has to still look like London, where... Neverland can look like whatever you want it to look like, so there's there's no restrictions, and and maybe maybe that makes it a little less interesting to me. Yeah, it's interesting that you say that because as I'm like playing back the movie in my mind, I can very clearly picture the nursery, um, whereas it's it's more difficult to picture some of the other other places um, in the movie, other than like the super iconic ones, like I mean as they as they're coming into Skull Rock, which of course looks like a giant skull in the water, you know, or, um, yeah, like Peter's hideout. Like I, I have a pretty, pretty clear image of that in my head, but, but the rest just kind of washes over you in a way. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. 
so let's jump back to Peter and talk about his his uh, his traits and if he has any good ones. Um, yeah, what what would you say about Peter? Well, I mean, I, I think part of the point here is he's supposed to be an eleven year old boy, and eleven year old boys are not known for being um, the easiest people to get along with. Um, so he's deeply misogynist. He uh, he is an amazing narcissist. He he plays Tinkerbell and Wendy off each other um, to compete for him without seeming that that's what he's doing at all. And also Tiger Lily and the Mermaid. So he he demands love from all these women, and uh, yet he doesn't really show any affection to any of them. He just kind of bosses them around. Um, and and again, if he if his name weren't on the movie, I, I don't think that would bother many people, and he could be kind of a semi-villain, and it would be okay. But uh, when you're a kid, at least I didn't notice that, and, and Peter Pan seemed like the hero of the movie to me. And since I've watched it as an adult, and I've seen it four or five times since I've been an adult, um, I, it, it, he just seems terrible. Yeah, um, I, don't, I don't disagree with any of that. Um, I... <laughs> I want to make a comment, and I don't know if I should. There's there's a certain person who is who would have been seven years old when this movie came out, um, and, and <laughs> I wonder what sort of impression just based on that, just based on the description you just gave. Um, but on the on the flip side, trying to find a positive in Peter, um, one thing that I really do like about him um, is that he's very interested in having fun. And I don't, I think for him, it goes, it goes over the line. So, but there's still an element there that I think is, is maybe admirable is too strong a word, but there's, there's something to it. So this, the scene I want to talk about is the tiger lily scene, because in this scene, uh, he sees that tiger lily's in danger and he goes to rescue her, which is, you know, somewhat noble. Um, and he goes and he says to Wendy, he says, oh, this will be fun. And she says, fun. And then the way that he decides to attack is not immediately through going to violence, but he decides to impersonate Captain Hook and make him say ridiculous things, you know, and and give orders to Shmi that he would never actually give. But Shmi, of course, follows them, which is hilarious, you know. Um, and so his, his way of problem solving or whatever is... It's I don't know. I think there's there's something really good to be said about that. Of course it all goes wrong because he gets so caught up in his play and his fun that he almost allows Tiger Lily to drown. Like he forgets about her, right? Like he is, as you said, like so narcissistic that he gets caught up in in his own joy that he's having and, and needs to be called back out of it. But I just wonder, do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, he's he's having a good time. He's um he has panache. He he is an eleven year old boy's idea of a hero, and and you know as you say sometimes that really works. The the other redeeming quality he has is that he has honor. Um, to a, to an extent, he keeps his promise to not fly when he's fighting with Captain Hook. Um, which is more than you can say for the promises Hook makes. So it's yeah. it's he's not wholly devoid of good qualities, but if your daughter was dating him, you sure you sure wouldn't uh, you sure wouldn't be happy about it. <laughs> That's true. No, I yeah I like I like what you just said that he has honor and then he has um, he also like related to that honor thing is when you draw his attention back to 
what he's supposed to be doing or the or the right thing, like he does it. Yes, you know? he almost always eventually does the right thing. Yeah. So, yeah. Do you think he grows in this movie? I do. I think um, I think when when he thinks Tinkerbell is dead, he he changes a little bit. He understands that that she's important to him in a way that I don't think he really had acknowledged before that. Yeah. It's yeah, interesting, that, you know, the iconic scene in the stage play is uh, after that bomb goes off and Tinkerbell is supposedly dead, Peter Pan turns to the audience and tells them they have to believe uh, in fairies for her to come back to life. And it's interesting they didn't do that. They didn't have that fourth wall breaking. Yeah, I guess they discussed it, but, but uh, Disney didn't think it would work, which I think is a good bit of foresight on his part. Because I can imagine it, potentially working in the theater um and at that time he would have had no knowledge about the potential of home video or whatever but it it doesn't work in home video my kids have a movie um where it asks it's a care bear movie and they ask the kids to like join in with them and like say you know uh we care we care or whatever and my kids just, they don't do it they, they flatly just, refuse and they, yeah and it uh i mean they really like the movie though they they will watch it any opportunity we give them if we give them like choices like they'll pick that one which i do not understand at all but like um but yeah they don't do it or like the same thing with like um you know uh dora the explorer or whatever which um can you say map yeah that sort of thing and there is there's a short period of there's a very short window with in my own experience where kids will do that you know like they'll respond and do it and then but it's super short it's like two and a half to three and then after that like it just it doesn't happen and so yeah that was good foresight on his part i think not to try and invoke the audience yeah i agree i don't think i, I think it would have been i think it would have been annoying yeah So we've talked before on the show a little bit about um, the kind of, I don't know if you, I don't know what the right word is for it. I don't know if it's a trope or um, you can correct me if it's something else, but the, this idea of like the civilizing effect that women have on men. And um, like, do you see that in, in Wendy and Peter's relationship? Oh, absolutely. And he frames it as, as needing a mother, right? I mean, well, kind of, I don't think he understands that's what's happening, but what he wants is someone to read him stories about himself which is itself a kind of domestication. Um, but Wendy clearly sees her role as to domesticate the Lost Boys. And and you see this when uh, they go into the hideout at the, the end of the first day, and uh, Michael doesn't want to go to sleep, and Peter, or uh, Wendy, makes him go to sleep, which is what mothers do. And then when she gets back to London, she wants to move out of the nursery. You know, it's, it's time for her to grow up. Uh, this is something women are supposed to do and then i mean you also look at it's it's weird to think of uh george darling as being non-domestic 
but in, in a certain way he is. He's kind of wild, and Mrs. Darling has to calm him down and put his clothes on him and basically prepare him for the world. So, I, absolutely, I think I think you see that in this movie. Yeah. I want to talk about George Darling's clothes, um, but before we do, on that in that scene when Wendy's putting the kids to bed, I don't know if this is important or not. It's so difficult to know, like when there's an intentional symbolism and when there isn't in these movies, you know. Uh, but I I feel like this might have been intentional. They go, they zoom into to Peter, and he's sulking in there because Wendy's winning over his lost boys, right? Um, and he's got his. Uh, Indian garb on still and he's holding an arrow but he breaks it uh, you know which is you know the broken arrow is like the symbol of peace and I just really thought oh like he's that's that's the moment when he starts to change is, is that one that's it I, that, that had not occurred to me but I don't think I knew that a broken arrow was a symbol of peace is it not I, thought I, it I don't know I mean you, you may be right it makes sense uh, maybe, I just yeah. never I just never heard that. I mean it's not like I'm an expert yeah well yeah Maybe maybe I just made it up. <laughs> I mean, even if it's not peace, it's a symbol of at least in this movie. I'm not saying anything about Native Americans. It's it's a symbol of savagery, and he that he breaks it suggests that he is being domesticated. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So what's happened to men's fashion in the last hundred years? We don't we don't have. I don't even know what that's called. A, a shirt front. Yeah, I think so. Shirt front. It's a classic. It's, uh, it's a classic of of animation that it pops up and hits you in the face. <laughs> yeah, we're gonna see it a few more times before we're done, or at least one. Um, I know it's in the Aristocats. I can't remember if it's in any other um, or not. But but not just the shirt front. He's got the the bow tie, the the top hat, the cane, the cape. I mean, it's it's everything. Uh, all, all st- at least stereotypical parts of Victorian and Edwardian men's fashion. Another guy with incredible style, though, is uh, Captain Hook. Who is played by the same person who plays George Darling, which is a, a tradition in the in the stage play. Yeah. And in this case, the great Hans Conried, who is a, a big radio star from the 40s, and this is one of the great vocal performances in Disney movies. Captain Hook is one of the great villains. He's uh, he's just great. Yeah. So I read that about the that it was the tradition from the stage play. Is it supposed to make some sort of connection in the audience's head between uh, George Darling and Captain Hook, or is it just um, they're never on the stage at the same time and it saves money? No, I think it's got to make the connection. I think I, I think the idea here is that as George is the villain of the nursery, Captain Hook is the villain of. Neverland, and just as nobody quite takes George seriously, it's sometimes difficult to take Hook seriously because he's so foppish and ridiculous. Yeah. This is an interesting uh, thing that I found in my research was that the uh, the animator who worked on Hook was Frank Thomas, who's one of the, uh, you know, the Disney greats, the, the legends. That, the nine old that men. He's, yeah, the nine old men. But he said that basically the the story man and the director couldn't decide on what they wanted Hook to be, so he kind of ended up with both. So he got that kind of um, sinisterness, um, I think, that you see in certain scenes, um, like where he where he shoots his own man out of the... Yeah! I'd forgotten uh, about that. Yeah. Uh, I think that was the director that was really pushing a more sinister Hook, and then... Uh, 
what was the word you just used? Foppish? Foppish. <laughs> I don't know if I know how to use that word correctly, but um, yeah, the more foppish direction I think was coming from some of the story men. And so then, uh, yeah, in the, in the criticism I read, uh, you see it really clearly in the going again back to that tiger lily scene where when at the beginning of that fight, uh, you really feel like if, if Hook gets a hold of Peter with that hook, he's gonna, you know, uh, he's gonna tear him apart. Whereas by the end of that scene, by the end of that fight, uh, they use one of the oldest cartoon gags where they walk out over the, you know, off the edge of the cliff. And of course, Peter can do it because he can fly, but Captain Hook looks down and then, you know, falls like a, you know, flailing wildly. So, yeah, I think I never noticed that, um, as a kid, but, reading the you know reading some of the background i was like oh yeah i can see that does uh does it work for you that splitting the difference on captain hook um like i said i never picked up on it or noticed it i still love this movie so it must work for me um yeah that's one of those things where it's like it was is was it better to be ignorant of that <laughs> you know like because now that i've seen it will i ever unsee it you know i don't know i hope i didn't ruin it for all our listeners I noticed it this time before. I, that that point is made in one of the documentaries on the on the DVD I have, um, and I noticed it before that. I didn't I didn't see it as splitting the difference, but I noticed that he was neither entirely threatening nor entirely comic relief. And I thought I thought I was trying to figure out what makes him such a great villain, and I think that's part of it is that he can be a little scary when he needs to be. You need a villain. You you need to feel that the villain is a genuine menace, but also I mean. Ultimately, you don't want kids to have nightmares about Captain Hook, so they they also make him ridiculous. Yeah. When my when my niece was three or four years old, she thought of me as Captain Hook. Really? Yeah. <laughs> I, I forget I forget the exact circumstances, but I know I was connected in her mind with Captain Hook, which I take as a badge of honor. Yeah, it's that hat that you wear all the time. Sure. That's, that's true, and and well, you know, I, I don't know if our listeners know this, but I have a hook for a hand. <laughs> so I that makes sense that. if you think about yeah. it. I mean, <laughs> I don't. I don't know why I never made that connection before. Well, um, yeah, who else should we talk about? We've kind of talked about Wendy and Peter. Got to um, talk about Tinkerbell. Yeah, let's let's talk a little more about Tinkerbell. And I love Tinkerbell, and I say this in earnest. I used to have, uh, not when I was a kid, I was in graduate school, I had a lamp with Tinkerbell on it uh, because I love her so much. I, I think she is one of the all-time great children's characters. What, what do you love about her in particular? Like, what's, what's she the thing? Will, she will cut you. She She's so cruel. Um, and yet, in some ways, she's the only person in this movie who responds to things the way a human being would respond to things. She is understandably jealous of of the other women that Peter is constantly playing off of her. She gets angry. She um, She feels self-conscious, which is something you almost never see 
in in these movies. Uh, there, there's the there's the scene, and I don't know if this is offensive or not, but I've always thought it was funny. The scene where she's walking on the hand mirror, and she she is upset at the size of her hips. Now I you know I I I I'm not sure that's a great message to send little girls, but I think it's interesting that she's self conscious. I I just I find her to be the most uh, human of characters in this movie, and and one of the most human characters in all of the Disney canon. Yeah, I in the documentary I was watching, or I shouldn't say documentary, special feature, you know, on the bonus features or whatever. They were talking about Tinkerbell, and they said she's only capable of carrying one emotion at a time, and so whatever emotion she's in, she's like fully there, you know. Um, which obviously in a in a in a human would be uh, terrible, <laughs> but in a uh, for for this purpose, I think it does. It, it relates to what you said. Like like her responses come off as as very real. Um, I mean, you wouldn't want to be but... friends with her because she's dangerous, and and that in in a weird way actually makes her a more um, realistic is probably not the right word. A, a more faithful version of fairies because in in uh, British myths, I mean, fairies are nasty creatures that mess with people just for fun. And you see that very clearly in Shakespeare's Midsummer Night's Dream. Uh, I mean, the entire purpose of Puck is just to go around messing with people. Tinkerbell's not quite to that level because she does have actual feelings for Peter, but she's certainly willing to kill Wendy. I mean, she tries to literally kill Wendy at least twice in this movie. Yeah, and she's not ashamed of it. No, no. And you know... It's not Wendy's fault, and it, it, I, I think it's a, a piece of verisimilitude that uh, Tinkerbell blames Wendy for Peter being a jerk to her. I, I think that that's a that's a very human response. Uh, so many women, if their husbands or boyfriends cheat on them, blame the other woman instead of the, the man. So I, I think that's a nice bit of uh, critique of the patriarchy here in the movie. But uh, she she is abused. Peter treats her really terribly. Um, if nothing else, he grabs her, turns her upside down, and shakes her to make another woman fly. I mean, think about that if you're if you're Tinkerbell. You know what I mean? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I hear you. Um, I think the other strength of her from a from the movie's point of view, or the, like the story's point of view, this is nothing necessarily with her her character traits, but the the that all of her language is done in just the ringing of the bells. Um, I mean, she has no like groaners of wines or anything like That's that. That's true. Right? Yeah, like she's she's all in your imagination. You know, like um, I know that really bothered you about, or not that particular feature, but like you weren't you weren't a big fan of Dopey. But I think a lot of the um, characters in that Dopey vein, where you know they they don't speak at all, actually they help they help make the movie better. Oh, a hundred percent. Yeah, and I think I said that about Dumbo. Right, Dumbo doesn't speak and and. Dumbo is a great character. It, it it all has to do with how well they do the facial acting, and I think yeah. I think uh, Dopey is just such a unattractive character design. But <laughs> yeah, no, I, I mean, and then you think of Pluto is another another great Disney character who never talks and yeah. gets everything across he needs to by his big sad eyes. Yeah. So yeah, yeah Tinkerbell's definitely in that line, and she's she's great for it. I want to point out that that Hook has some sympathy for her. It's false sympathy, 
but it's uh, it's sympathy nonetheless when he when he invites her to his ship and and tries to turn her against Peter. He's pretty much exactly right. Uh, I mean, he's he's doing it out of terrible motives, but the things he says, other than that this is all Wendy's fault, the things he says are absolutely true. Tinkerbell has been done wrong, really in an absurdly cruel way. If I were Tinkerbell, I would just turn Peter over. Let, let Hook kill him. That'd be a good ending <laughs> to this movie. Yeah. Well, I think her hope is that... Uh... I mean, it's it's obvious in the movie, so this is not a deep insight. But yeah, she hopes she'll get Peter back. You know, things will be things will be the way they were before. Right, so not, because because she's not ready to see what the real problem is here, which is not Wendy or or uh, Tiger Lily or the mermaids. It's Peter. He's he's he he needs to be worshipped by all these women, so he plays them off of each other. Maybe yeah. I don't like Peter because I like Tinkerbell so much, or maybe I like Tinkerbell so much because I don't like Peter. I, th- I feel like that. That deserved a witty comeback, and I, I didn't have it, so sorry. <laughs> you should just ring a bell. You <laughs> should. That's how we should do the podcast from now on. You just talk, and I'll ring a bell every once in a while. You know, she talks in the in the uh, Pixie Hollow movies, or whatever they're called. Yeah, I don't... Yeah, like I said, I haven't seen this. Yeah, and I never will, because I have no interest in hearing what sort of voice they give to Tinkerbell. I feel like making Pluto yeah. talk. Yeah. Yeah. That movie where Tom and Jerry talk. Oh, right. Yeah, I actually did see that one, I think, when I was a kid. Yeah. Yeah, there's certain there's certain things that just shouldn't be shouldn't be undone, right? So Um Well, I think we've covered a lot of ground in this movie. Um we haven't really talked about Shmee or the other pirates. Do you want to talk about them for a minute? Uh, Smee is played by, I should have written it down, it's uh, Bill Thompson, I think. It's the same person who plays the White Rabbit. Uh, it's a very White Rabbit-esque performance. Uh, it, it's kind of cut from the same cloth. It, it, it's just that he has more to do, and uh, he's a little bit stupider than the White Rabbit, who was already pretty stupid. Yeah. You know, it's funny, I got that in reverse. Like, when we watched Alice in Wonderland, I was like, oh, it's me. But then, um, even though we only watched it a month ago, when we watched Peter Pan, like, it's he is Shmi, you know? So I don't even think about him being uh, the White Rabbit. Um, but along those lines, Wendy and Alice are also done by the same young lady. Yeah, Catherine Beaumont. Yeah. Which is Which why she also looks like... Alice, because um, this movie, like Alice in Wonderland, used live-action models. So if you if you look at the uh, documentary documentary ets on um, on the DVD, they'll show you some pictures of the of the live-action stuff, and it's really kind of amazing. They built actual sets. Uh, they they almost could have just made a live-action movie. Yeah, well, I think the sets are pretty minimalistic, but other than a few giant props like the the Tinkerbell with the with the giant pair of scissors trying to get the drawer open um but I think uh yeah for the most part they were just trying to get you know models for the artist to work off of so backgrounds came from the background department but yeah it is interesting that they do it that way so yeah I mean that 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 explains the the similarities in the in the way they look um 
Yeah, I mean, Smee is, Smee is, as Captain Hook is one of the great villains, Smee is one of the great idiot sidekicks to the villains. Yeah, the, I mean, he really gets a shine there at the beginning when he, when he's trying to give Captain the shape. He's really a voice of, you know, there's something, um, about Smee that's, I mean, you, you call him an idiot, and in some ways he is, but in other ways, he really knows how to, um, cover a hard message in in syrup, right? <laughs> maybe <laughs> maybe the it. better word is a fool, then, because I mean that's that's the traditional role of the fool in 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 Shakespeare. So okay. The fool seems like an idiot, but really he's the only one who says anything that makes sense to the to the person in power. Yeah. Although I don't know how much Captain Hook actually listens to him, you know. No. So. He doesn't. He doesn't quite feel that. Although I guess I'm not familiar enough with Shakespeare to know how often the people in power actually listen to the fools either. They don't really no. listen to him. I mean, the the okay. classic one is the fool from King Lear, and he he's making fun of King Lear in a very moralistic way throughout the play, and Lear seems to barely notice. Yeah. Uh, I I will point out in the book. Now I I didn't go back and read the play, but I remember in the book, uh, Smee is not comic relief and in fact was well known for taking his sword shoving it into somebody's chest and twisting it that was his signature move so i I don't know what he's like in the play but it seems to me that disney may have made him a little more bumbling yeah that's gruesome uh, (laughs) for a children's book pretty crazy yeah that's definitely the darker side of things yeah i didn't go back and read the source material on this one is the is the book just like a retelling of the play in a story form, or is it a continuation of the story? It's it's a retelling, uh, okay. with, with obviously more narrative detail, because you don't have a lot of narrative detail in plays. I think the yeah. play comes first. I, I think the play did come first in this one, yeah. But I, I don't actually know. I didn't, didn't, didn't chase down that rabbit trail to this time. Yeah. Do you have any thoughts on the, the music in this? Uh, yeah, uh, second star to the right, which opens the, which opens the movie, is a really beautiful song. You can fly is is really good. Um, I'm trying to remember. Are there any other songs besides those two? And uh, what makes the red man red? Which is yeah, not the, great. The, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. We talked about that one. We did talk about the music on that one. Yeah, I I'm in agreement with you that both those songs are really pretty. I really like that style. Is that uh? The like the opening song, you know that we've we've talked about this before. Is that a genre of some kind, or is this like just a Disney thing? No, it's a genre. Um, I, I would that usually gets called traditional pop. Okay. Nowadays, I mean, if if you go back and uh, look at a Billboard chart from 1950 or something, I'm sure you can find other people who sing like that. But Bing Bing Crosby, for example, in in some modes when he wasn't jazzier. Uh, wrote stuff that sounded like that, or sang stuff that sounded like that. I don't think he wrote very much at all. Yeah, I should I should go back and dig through some of that stuff. Um, there's the pirate song, um, two pirate songs. There's the opening pi- pirate song. Uh, a pirate's life is a wonderful life. Is that right? Yeah, I think so. Yes, and then there's the the recruitment song uh, when they're trying to convince the uh, the lost boys to sign up and not walk the plank. 
Um, and th- I mean, in some ways, the movie is most famous for a song that's not in it, which is "Never Smile at a Crocodile," um, which you you still get in an instrumental form, but there was originally an entire song. It's included on the soundtrack, and for some reason, I knew that song even though it's not in the movie. Yeah, I don't think I'm familiar with it, but uh, but uh, I saw it on the bonus features. But I was like, I don't. <laughs> it was one of those things where I was like, I don't have time to watch um, extra songs. I want to look at some other stuff. So I will have to go back and look at it. So yeah. you know, we it's didn't a, talk it, about it, the crocodile. We did crocodiles. Uh, yeah, he's something else. I mean, it, that's when it gets most cartoony. I guess is when the crocodile is involved. But that uh, that that little crocodile motif you know the da, 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 da. <laughs> that's never so, smiled a crocodile that's that's the oh, song is it? yeah oh okay okay yeah it's it's catchy um and i so there's a couple moments in this movie where they do um i don't know i always it it reminds me of fantasia just when the when the music and the what's happening on the screen just just line up perfectly you know um so uh, the crocodile uh, often does that, you know, like moves just perfectly in time to that music. Its eyes bob along, you know. Um, and then uh, also in, when uh, John has, wait, which one's the younger one's Michael, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Michael, Michael spots uh, the Native American in the tree and is like running, running away and the tree's following after and it, it. You know, it's just, you know, 20 seconds or something, but it's like perfectly, you know, synced to the music. I just, I really enjoy those moments when they throw them in. That was another song we forgot, Following the Leader. Oh, yeah. How Which was one of my that? favorite that, when I was a kid. Yes. Yeah, that one I, I still sing all the time. So that one, that one often pops into my head. So. T-dum to be. <laughs> Well, we did talk about this a little bit already. Was the the shaping of the imagination, just that being able to look at at the world through that enchanted lens? But I don't know if you had um, anything else that you wanted to to add or say about how Peter Pan should shape our imaginations um, positively. <laughs> we yeah. also talked about how it they could teach they you how to play do, women off of each other. Yeah, teach you some teach you some horrible stereotypes. Um, so yeah, be be cautious of those. But is, is there anything in here that you think is particularly uh, Christian that we we could we could pull out? I do not see anything that's particularly Christian. But I I, I do think that scene in London, the, the scene of them flying over London, is key if we're talking about enchantment. 
because uh, that's a place you could actually see in 1905 or whenever this is supposed to take place. And so I think in some ways that's more important than that for the imagination than uh, Neverland itself. Do you see anything Christian in this movie? Um, I mean, you have to, you have Tinkerbell's self-sacrifice for Peter. Um, so that's that's something. A self-sacrifice only necessary because she screwed things up. True. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Um, yeah, that does that does dampen it quite a bit. <laughs> but it is there, you know, like it is there. I think there is the uh, there's something to Wendy's um, nobleness of facing facing certain death. Um, I mean, she's still hoping that Peter will show up, even though. And then, of course, Captain Hook and Shmi tell tell her that he's dead. But I don't know that her hope entirely dies in that moment. Maybe it does, but she still she still decides to be brave and to face, you know, like she's not going to become a pirate. She's going to still live. I don't know. I don't know if there's something in there or not. Something, something there. And also with the dignity of Tiger Lily, as you, as you know, they're, they're both facing death with a certain, a certain dignity. And I wonder, I wonder if maybe there's a statement there about gender that in some ways, the two most noble characters are both women, girls. Yeah, there may be. And isn't this is this another one like Alice? Uh, Alice, where it was it was written for a young girl, like originally. I think no? it was written for two young boys. Okay. I don't I know. Did you ever that. see Finding Neverland? I never watched that. No. I didn't either. I think I think it's boys though. Okay. All right. So never mind. I was going to say that could that could be part of the reason why, right? Like if you're trying to. To write something for a young girl, of course, you'd have the most noble characters be girls. But I think it's great if you're writing something for boys and you make the most noble characters girls also. <laughs> so. the, only, the only problem is I suspect most uh, most uh, boys see it and don't think about them at all and just think about how cool Peter Pan is. That's the, I'm sure that, that was my position when I was a child. Right. Yeah. Because, yeah, pirates and, and secret hideouts and all that stuff are, are way cooler. So. Uh, yeah, there's that eagerness of of everybody to join up with the pirates, you know, of all the boys, I mean, to join up with the pirates that that kind of speaks to that I don't I don't know what it is, just the the attractiveness of that. So All right. Well, I think I've said all I have to say. Do you have anything else to add? I don't think so. Next month we talk about Lady and the Tramp, as we mentioned earlier. Oh yes, Lady and the Tramp. I the spaghetti scene is all I've got on that one it's, right uh, now. It, it's really a, a lovely little movie, other than some of the racial stereotypes. So I'm, I'm looking forward to talking to you about it. All right. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it too. I I honestly. Oh, I do remember you mentioned the Siamese cats, and I do remember that uh, they are in there. Or I remember their song. You know. Um, although I think I, I, if you had really pinned me down prior to, to saying that, 
Um, I could have hummed the, you know, We Are Siamese, If You Please song, but I couldn't have told you which Disney movie it came from. So, um, yeah. So it'll be an all-new one for me next next week. Good times. All right. Well, Michael and I know that there are a great number of podcasts out there you could be spending your time on, so thank you for choosing us. We also want you to know that Before They Were Live is a proud member of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our press liaison is Kristen Philippic. Uh, please help us continue this conversation by emailing us at before they were live at gmail.com, or you can find us on Twitter. I'm at the alt, at the underscore alt, and Michael is at Michael Farmer. We also have a website that is occasionally updated with show notes when I feel like it, and that's before they were dot live, and we'd love it if you visit us there. And now for Michael Farmer, this is Josh Altman Show for reminding you to think of the happiest things. It's the same as having wings. <laughs>